Hello. Welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is for you and I to work together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome whether you're joining us here for the first time today or you've been along for this journey right from the start. You have two options. You can just pick up from where we are today or you can make the decision to go back and listen right from the beginning at whatever pace that suits you, thereby making the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. I do hope you'll do that and you can subscribe to this podcast wherever it is you're getting your podcasts from and that way you'll never miss another single episode. But with that said, I hope you will come back again and hang around at the end after today's study and I'll tell you lots of ways that you can connect with this ministry and access other free Bible teaching and Bible study resources. Thank you and bye-bye for now. Okay, today we're approaching the back end of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 27 to 44, and we're fast approaching the climax, really, of this gospel account of the life, and as we shall see today, the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And today I'd like to look at today's passage and ask us to consider the question of what it can teach us about when we're mocked or ridiculed. And I suppose if I ask any of you, have you ever been mocked? I think most of you would say, yes, that is a common experience in the life of everyone. Has anyone ever stood up right in front of you and in front of other people and laughed at you? Now, I think the times that that sort of thing hurts the most is when it happens to us in childhood. But we can know that sort of thing as an adult as well, and that's equally painful. I wonder if anyone's ever mocked you or laughed at you because of something spiritual that you've said or just because of the basic fact that they know you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm sure that's the experience of many Christians who are listening to this with me now. All of us, I believe, will have had the experience of being laughed at, made fun, mocked about our Christian faith and frankly, friends, it can hurt. Being laughed at does hurt. Being mocked can leave very deep marks on us. But it's good to know that you're not alone in that. That's the experience of most people who profess to be Christian believers. And we need to remember that no less than Jesus himself also experienced it. But beyond that, he wasn't just mocked. He was then taken and beaten and whipped and then crucified. But in the run-up to that, we can see that he was mocked laughed at and ridiculed and it's that I'd mainly like to focus on today. What I'd like us to do is to look at his experience, Jesus's experience, and see what we can learn from it and how it might help us handle these sort of painful experiences in our life. Now we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew together for quite a while and we're in the midst of this trial and the up-and-coming crucifixion of Jesus. So we're going to Drop back in to where we left off last time and I'll begin to read for you from Matthew chapter 7 and we'll pick up the text at verse 27, which tells us this. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. 
They put his staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat upon him, and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him, and then led him away to be crucified. Now in this passage we're told and given a number of things that happened to Jesus just before the crucifixion. I want us to look at them and I want to make the point. And I just want you to notice the fact that Matthew seems to make a rather big issue out of the fact that prior to the crucifixion they mocked him. They kneel before him, they mock him and they spit on him and they take thorns and they twist them into a crown and place them on his head. And then they strike him in the head and continue to abuse and mock him. And I'll just carry on with the text, picking up at verse 32 now. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross also. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by heard insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders also mocked him, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. The king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him, for it was he who said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So there's a continuing theme here. We see the chief priests also mocking him and the scribes and the elders. And even in verse 34, not only the passers-by, but even the robbers who are crucified alongside him insult him as well. Now we're going to look at several things that happen in this passage. But in a sense, everything in this passage in one way or another, obviously it's an illustration of the actual crucifixion, but it's underpinned by this continual mocking and ridiculing and insulting him all the way through this process right up to the point of death we shall eventually see the first part of this passage that told us that jesus was mocked by the military not just a few soldiers but the whole garrison of the praetorium were there and were involved just to remind you and give you a little background here you may remember me saying before that the temple was not a singular building. It was a large area which covered over 35 acres and it had around it a wall and perched on that wall was a fortress called the Praetorium and that's where the Roman soldiers stayed in a place where they could look over the whole courtyard. They did it that way so that if there was any kind of riot or trouble they could immediately be on the spot. Now the fact that they were based there and it was said that there was a garrison of Roman soldiers there What that tells us, and we can know from outside the Bible, that a garrison of soldiers could be as many as 500 soldiers. Maybe because of the Passover events that were going on at that time, and they're expecting this huge influx of people, it would seem reasonable that that's why, at that point, they'd stationed a full garrison there. Maybe they were fearful that the Jews might start a riot. 
but whatever the case, they're in the Roman fortress overlooking the temple, and there's certainly a large number of Roman soldiers there, probably as many as 500. And that's the point at which we see, and the background to which we see these events played out. So with this whole garrison around him, they take Jesus, they strip him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. So why would they do that? Well, the answer is rather simple. The scarlet robe was the one that was normally worn by royalty. So what they're doing is they're mocking him. He's been accused of saying he's the king of the Jews. So these Roman soldiers are making fun of him and they put a scarlet robe on him and mock him as if he's a sort of king. They also twist a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And there's more mocking. You're, if you're a king, they say, well, you deserve a crown. And so they take a branch of thorns and twist it and make a crown and cram it on his head. Now, in and of itself, even just that thing would have been extremely painful. They also take a small branch and they place it in his right hand. And this is a sort of sarcastic, mocking way of saying, you're the king, supposedly, well, here's your scepter. And then they mockingly bow the knee before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. It also tells us that they spat on him and they took the branch that they had originally put in his hand and struck him on the head, remembering that he would have had the crown of thorns on at that time. And at the end of this, they led him away to be crucified. They beat him to the point of nearly knocking him unconscious, as implied. It was a sustained, vicious, violent beating. Then they took him and set off to have him crucified. The book of Isaiah adds a bit of information that says the Messiah's vestige will be more marred than any man before. In other words, it's suggesting that he was and is beaten to the point where it's almost beyond recognition. But do notice that as much as the physical suffering, which is indeed overwhelming, Matthew also wants us to focus on the mental anguish of what's going on here. The mental anguish of being mocked and scorned and the contempt that's poured out on him. They deride him. They even mimic him. Now people will tell you it can take a lifetime to get over humiliation. Physical violence is terrible, but we can recover it. But sometimes emotional scarring can take us a lifetime to get over. As someone once said, and I quote, Laughter is meant to be a gift of God. But there is no gift of God which is more frequently abused and converted from a blessing into a curse. When laughter is directed against good people, when it is used to belittle and degrade, where it is employed as a weapon with which to torment the weak and ridicule them, then instead of being a balm to the soul, it can become a deadly poison. God did indeed, I believe, give us the gift of humour and laughter, and they do say that, that laughter is a good medicine. It can be good for the soul. It can help us make light of our struggles. But that same gift of God can be used to great harm. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul says we're to walk in love and not walk in sins. And then he lists the sins that you would expect to see. The things like sexual immorality, uncleanliness, covetousness. But also in the list of sins he includes foolish talking and coarse gesturing suggesting that these things can be put on the same level as these other sins which we readily recognize. Some types of humor are specifically designed to hurt. As a matter of fact, the word sarcasm is a Greek word which literally means to tear the flesh like dogs, to enrage and to speak bitterly. 
There is a type of sarcasm, and we see it everywhere today, that can cut people to the bone. And it's a kind of harmful humour that ought not to be part of the life of a believer who's trying to follow Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ experienced here. He was experienced being mocked, being ridiculed with scorn, and the contempt and the sarcasm in their mimicking of him was solely designed to make fun of him and humiliate him before leading him off to be crucified. Jesus then is forced to carry his own cross all the way to a place called Golgotha, and the load becomes so heavy that he is seen to fall beneath it, to stumble and fall beneath it. Now at that time, Roman soldiers had the ability to conscript anybody on the spot, and in that case, verse 32, as they do that, and they draft this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to help Jesus carry his cross. Now Cyrene was a place in North Africa, so this man is from Africa, he's an African, and it is he is the one who bears his cross, and it is he who is forced to help carry it, all the way it would seem to Golgotha. Now some have suggested that this man probably has saved his money for a great length of time in order to be able to travel from North Africa to attend the Passover in Jerusalem. And now he's finally made it. He's there to experience the trip of a lifetime and he gets into Jerusalem and as an innocent bystander when this parade of suffering happens to pass by, just by chance he gets chosen, conscripted and ordered to carry the cross. What a turn of events for him. However, what I would say, that chance meeting that Simon had with the Saviour did in fact bring him his salvation. Someone once wrote that Simon came to Jerusalem to sacrifice a Passover lamb, but he met the Lamb of God himself who sacrificed for him. What perhaps Simon maybe saw in that moment as something shameful became the day of his glory. There's a tradition from outside the scriptures that say Simon became a believer and he went back to Africa and he preached the gospel there. And there is in fact some indication of that being true in the scriptures themselves where Mark's gospel account tells us that Simon was the father of of two men called Alexander and Rufus. So in Mark's gospel narrative which was written mainly to Roman believers he mentions these names, these two names and their family heritage to those readers in Rome in a way which would suggest that they knew who these guys who were sort of hereditary-wise originally from North Africa, that they knew who they were. So according to many tradition backed up by this biblical reference, many suggest that Simon not only went back to Africa, but he led his family to Christ, who apparently then returned to Rome, where they were known within the Christian community influential believers there. So this one man called Simon would in a sense touch two continents with the love of Jesus, Africa and Europe. He would introduce them to the gospel because on this day he met Jesus Christ and helped carry his cross. The next event in this passage is the crucifixion itself. So as I said the crucifixion takes place at this place called Golgotha. Now, we don't actually know how this place got its name, but we do know what that name means. It was called the Place of the Skull. But at any rate, we see he was crucified there in this area, very appropriately, it seems to me, called the Place of the Skull, a place of suffering and death. Now, there was a common custom that before crucifixion, in the knowledge that it was so painful, that sometimes those guarding their prisoners would show a little mercy and try to give them some wine mixed with gall, 
which simply means that there was wine mixed with some bitter herbs that had a, a slight deadening effect in the pain. Some, it seems, therefore, were trying to display a little bit of compassion on those people who were being crucified, which if that was your job to do day in and day out, it would might be understandable that that's a way that you would try and change the reality slightly of what you were involved in. But the interesting thing in this text is says in verse 34 that he doesn't drink it. Some suggest that it's because he wanted to be fully conscious when he bore the sins of fallen humanity, the sins of the world, on his shoulders. At any rate, whether that's so or not, what we do see is clearly in verse 35 that they crucified him. And it actually tells us as they are doing that, they actually divide his garments. The Roman soldiers cast lots to see who gets what. And Matthew then adds for us that this is the fulfilment again of a prophecy which is found in Psalm 22 when it says they divided my garments amongst them and cast lots for them. Now each person in the day of Jesus would have had five pieces of clothing on them. An inner garment, an outer garment, a girdle, a head covering and a pair of sandals. From what we can gather some suggest that because there were four soldiers that would mean that they would have divided the locks, that each of them would have had divvy on a single item of clothing, and then they would cast lot over the last main outer garment. But the important point is Matthew is pointing out that this is just another indication of these events being the fulfilment of an Old Testament prophecy. So after doing that, these guys, they just sit down and they watch over him. But it also tells us that they wrote on a piece of wood and they place it over his head at the top of the cross, the accusation that's made against him, where they say, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now again, let me make a couple of observations. One thing, in the context of the immediate passage, this is, of course, another example of mockery going on. They're mocking him. But did the Roman soldiers believe he was the king? No. They are the one, the very ones who were mocking him earlier. And by saying that very thing, yet... By putting this statement above him, although it was meant to be another form of of mocking, it's interesting to me that what they actually do is they identify him and they make a true statement. Absolutely, he was indeed the king of the Jews. He fulfilled the prophecy of the Messiah, the king of the Jews. So at this point, there is a sense in the climax of the Gospel of Matthew, which is why Matthew lands on this and tells us that this, at the very climax of everything, that even though Jesus is crucified... And they took it to mean sarcastically, it is ironically, and unbeknownst to them, an absolute proclamation of the truth. Some have described this as the first gospel track, and I suppose that's not a bad analogy. So Jesus Christ is crucified, and one speaker I heard speaking it described it this way. He said he was scourged that we might be healed. He was stripped that we might be clothed with righteousness. He wore a crown of thorns that we might wear a crown of glory. He was mocked that we might be honoured and he was put to a painful death that we might enjoy life and eternal life. Jesus Christ died in our place so that we would not have to die. And then right at the end, the next thing we see happen is he gets mocked again. This time by the people who are just randomly passing by and even the two robbers who are crucified with him one on the right and the other on his left. Again he is mocked, cursed by those, mocked by those who are walking by saying, look, you destroyed the temple and you said you could destroy it and build it up again, but you can't even save yourself. 
If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. So we started out seeing that soldiers mocking him, and now it's the people mocking him, and even the passers-by, and even the very other people who are crucified alongside him mock him also. But listen to what Peter will say later about these events in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example that you should follow in his steps. He who committed no sin and who had no deceit in his mouth, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Notice when he was reviled, he didn't lash out in return. Take note, Peter says, he is meant to be our example. Therefore, my friend, when you get laughed at, when you get scorned for any reason, you should simply commit yourself to God in the knowledge that he is the one who will always judge righteously. There is one more little event in the close of this passage, and it says other people scorned him. It tells us that the chief priests and the scribe mocked him. Look, he claimed to save others, and he cannot even save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe him. So again, the religious leaders mock him. So the soldiers have mocked him. The ordinary people have mocked him. And the religious leaders mock him with bitter, biting sarcasm. But let me ask you the final question. Based on what they said, if he was indeed the Son of God, then why did he not come down? Well, the answer is he needed to stay up there in order to bear our sins, even to bear their sins in order to save us, to give those very people who were mocking him the potential to be saved. By way of illustration, you've probably heard me tell you before, I grew up in an area of Northern Ireland, quite a rural area, and in the summer I worked on a local farm. I once heard the story of a farmer who had gone out to his barn one morning and found a hen sitting on a bunch of chicks. And when the farmer touched the hen, he discovered that it was cold, it was dead. And the farmer said he reckoned what had happened was that a weasel had come along in the night and attacked the hen, attaching itself onto the hen's neck and head, and it had literally sucked all the blood out of the hen until it died. But the hen had not moved, but had stayed on the nest to save the chicks. Now, whether that's actually true or not, I don't really know, but I tell you that makes a great illustration of why Jesus did not remove himself, why he did not come down from the cross. The religious leader said, Look, come down and we'll believe in you. But if he came down from the cross, they wouldn't have had the chance to respond in free will and believe in him and be saved. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once said, On that day, some might have believed in him if he'd come down from the cross, but then millions today and throughout history have believed in him because he stayed upon the cross and died in our place so that we would not have to die. So in spite of all the suffering, physically, and emotionally, described for us in great detail in Matthew, it seems to me that one of the points that Matthew wants to be drawing our attention to is how, in fact, Jesus responded to all of this going on. And firstly, I would say, well, ultimately he knew who he was, and he knew he was doing the will of God. Now that may seem like stating the obvious, but it is also deeply significant. So in conclusion, I'd like to spell out just a few things for you. Number one is that Jesus Christ knew what it was like to be mocked 
He himself was mocked by ignorant people, religious people, fellow people condemned just like him, pretty much everyone. So he knows what it's like to be mocked. And that's important. It's important because if you're laughed at, especially if you're laughed at because you're committed to him or you love him, and then somebody ridicules you about that or mocks you about that, then knowing that Jesus also went through that becomes very important. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So when you're ever feeling cut to the bone, when you feel the emotional pain of someone laughing at you, just remember that this is something that Jesus himself really understands because he underwent it also. Remember, in these areas of life, he understands all of the emotions that we go through because he experienced it also and he experienced it in a sense to the ultimate degree and more than we likely will ever have to. The second thing I would like to say is Jesus knows what it feels like to be, be mocked, but he also knew how to respond to it. So how do you handle this sort of thing? Well, simply you should try and be like Jesus and just recognize that what you're doing is likely being initiated by the fact that you're trying to live in the will of God. And knowing that is what enables you and enabled him to withstand the torture, the ridicule, everything else, Knowing that it's happening to you because you're trying to live in the will of God should help you in the same way. I know this sounds simple, but it's very important. Jesus Christ knew that he was the Son of God and he was mocked for it. He knew that he was the King of the Jews and he was mocked for it. The point in all this, it is not the opinion of the other people that matter. That can be wholly disregarded. What mattered to him and the only thing that should matter to you was are you living your life in the will of God? And in knowing that, then he simply did what God told him to do. In his case, it was to stay on the cross of all things. And he was able to do that, and by doing that, he was able to die in our place and save us. I do believe we can learn a lot from this passage, but it's a tough lesson to learn. But it seems to me that there's something here that we can apply if we're mocked, ridiculed, or laughed at. In that, when those things happen, you simply should try and remember who you are, and what the will of God is for you to do. And don't pay any attention, try to pay no regard to the attitude of the people laughing at you. When you're mocked or abused, simply hold on to the fact that you are immeasurably valuable to God. Remember and say to yourself, my value comes from whom God says I am, and not what these other people say about me. Say to yourself, I have the righteousness of God in Christ and I am being transformed by the renewing of my mind. I am a new creation. I am considered justified, sanctified and redeemed from the curse of the enemy, delivered from all and any powers of darkness. Need I say more? Need we need any more than that? It's really very simply saying you need to try and allow your feelings to line up with what God says about you. Not what other people say about you, particularly those who are mocking you, who neither know or care about you or about God. 
When someone laughs at you, you can feel belittled. You may feel humiliated, devalued. Well, that's what they want you to feel. But here's the solution. Jesus didn't succumb to that because he knew who he was in the Father. And you too just need your feelings to line up with what God has already said about you. Let the Holy Spirit remind you and choose to believe what it says about you. In other words, what God says about you and don't just hang on to your feelings. You see, friends, feelings are not dependable. Feelings will in fact lie to us sometimes, but God's word is eternally true and we should hold on to that. Now, it takes practice. It takes hard work. And I have to say, as I go through this life, in this one aspect of my spiritual life, I'm probably getting a little better at it as I get older than I did when I was younger. I've been laughed at in my life, a great deal in fact. I've been laughed at because of my Christian faith and I've been ridiculed on this and in other areas and I'm sure you have also. And the most painful occasions were when I was young. But you know, I now know, and I've known for a great many years, that we don't have to listen to what these other people says. I don't have to listen anymore because I know who I am. I trust you know who you are. I know that I am in Christ. And I trust that you do too. And I trust thereby that you can then focus on, well, instead of wallowing in what people say about you, that you're able to focus wholly on what God says about you and pretty much disregard what anybody else says about you or about the Lord and thereby be free of the effects of mocking and derision. Okay, my friends, I hope you find that a little bit helpful. That's it for today, and we'll continue picking up the narrative right where we left off today next time. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and the Daily Bible Project podcast is hosted on the thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. And it is there that you will find all the links to all the other places and the platforms that I put my ministry and my teaching. It's also there where you'll find the episode notes if you want to have a rough transcript of what I'm said. It's available there. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from, but in order to have all the open links where you can click through and find out all the other places that I put my teaching on LinkedIn, on YouTube, a little bit on Facebook, and also places like Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee where you can partner and support this ministry. I have plans to expand the podcast side of my ministry into other areas and into new podcasts that have more of a reach out to people who aren't actually Christians at this point. But of course, that will need the support and partnership of some of you in order to help me achieve that one day. But anyway, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I do hope I'll see you right back here again tomorrow. What will be tomorrow for me? Whatever day it is for you is absolutely fine. Work through this at whatever pace that you feel able. But what a blessing to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. I'll see you again, I trust, very soon. So it's bye-bye for now.